O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O King. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded that the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I, saw, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar, then approaching the opening of the blazing furnace, shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and their prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their god, their own god. Great, if we could have our New Testament reading, that would be fantastic, please. Uh, this next reading is from Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. Um, the road to Emmaus. Now the same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only the vi a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened and there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, a powerful in word and deed before God and, all, and in all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. 
they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish are you, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ who suffered these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, giving, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognised him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, those and those with them, assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two, what, then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus had recognised them when he broke the bread. familiar accounts, these familiar stories will be come fresh to us again in a new way, that you speak to us through your living word this morning and encourage us in this season of life. Amen. Um, I guess this morning I want to suggest that hope is one of the essentials of life. But hope also at times, if we're really honest, can be something that's incredibly fragile and brittle. And when it fades, it's often so difficult to restore it or renew it. Hope lost is such a deeply painful thing. And with bearing that in mind, today's passage then, the road to Emmaus, a very familiar account, no doubt, to many, perhaps speaks in ways that, if we're honest, might be quite uncomfortably familiar. Each one of us, probably regardless of our background, our upbringing, our circumstances, have probably experienced this road at times. We've walked it, we've lost our way on it. We've left it behind, maybe we've ended up back on it again. The road to Emmaus can be so familiar and we recognise it by those words spoken by Cleopas and his companion, words we speak when our feet kind of stir up the dust as we walk along this path. What were those words? It's these words. But we had hoped. But we had hoped. Really simple words, but actually in them for these two people walking through is such pain. And what about for us? We'd hoped. We'd hoped the illness wasn't terminal. We'd hoped their marriage would last. We'd hoped our son would come home. We'd hoped the depression would lift. We'd hoped the money would come in. We'd hoped the pandemic would spare our family. We'd hoped to experience God's breakthrough. We'd hoped for a season of peace. These words are words that are often spoken 
on the road to Emmaus. Maybe you've spoken them or you've heard others speak them. They're words of pain, they're words of disappointment, they're words of confusion, words of deep longing and yearning that's been dashed. They're the words we say, I would suggest, when we've come to the end of our hope, when expectations, as I say, have been dashed and dreams abandoned, and there's nothing left to do but to just go home, to leave defeated and done. And maybe like this couple, Cleopas and his companion, you simply head back to where you come from to find some sort of refuge. Because Jerusalem, the place of hopes and dreams, holds no more life. But we had hoped. In um, this gospel account that we've just heard, Cleopas and his unnamed companion say these words to a stranger who appears alongside them as they walk to Emmaus, back to Emmaus, on Easter evening. But we had hoped that he was the one. We'd hoped he was the one. The one to redeem Israel. As far as they know, as far as they're concerned, Jesus is dead. The Lord they had staked their lives on, the Messiah they thought would change the world, is dead. And in the most humiliating and godless way imaginable. And his promises of a new kingdom, well, that's just come to nothing, dust. And even worse, Jesus' tomb is now empty, his body's missing, presumed stolen. And the woman, women who loved and followed him appear to have gone utterly loopy. Because what with their bizarre reports of angels and glowing gardeners and talking ghosts, everything's fallen apart. It's all gone mad. We had hoped. Cleopas and his friends were saying, we don't expect anything anymore. We once did. We had high hopes for the future, but now those hopes are gone. And all we've got left is disappointment and confusion. And it's right into the middle of that. Right into the middle of that mess and inconsolable pain that Jesus walks. He steps right into the middle of all that. Because that's what Jesus does. We just uh, sung a song uh, picked by Jonathan Aurelia, Living Hope. Listen to that first verse again. I'm I'm not going to sing it to you, you'll be delighted to know. But listen to the words. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. It's what Jesus does. So these two friends are simply walking home from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. It's about seven miles. I imagine they're kind of shuffling their feet, their heads are low. And they just walk, leaving behind them the city of God, leaving behind the capital of the Jewish people and the city associated with all the previous promise and hope and the very presence of God. All their dreams left in this city and they just turn their back on it and walk away. They head home back to Emmaus, heartbroken. Hope's been lost. And I think that's what we do, isn't it? I think that is exactly what we do. When we lose hope, well, we go back to something. Just like the Israelites, when they're in the wilderness. Do you remember when things start going a bit wrong for them and things are tough? They just start saying, do you know what? 
I just want to go back to Egypt. Back to Egypt? To their previous slavery, to their bondage, to the brutality of their captivity? Yeah, well, they'd rather do that than walk on into the unknown, hopeless. That's what's what a crushed spirit does to us. It makes us go back to just dreadful things because we can't imagine a way forward. But it's into such despair and confusion that Jesus, Jesus loves to step. It's actually the first time that we see him alive um, in Luke's Gospel. The angels announce it earlier in, in verse 12 that he's alive, but this is the first time that Luke shows us the living, breathing Jesus to his readers. And he does it in the most unassuming kind of way. He doesn't kind of like kind of zoom in kind of on a cloud or suddenly kind of arrive glowing. He just starts walking alongside them. And in the Greek, the Greek says this. It literally says their eyes were kept from recognising him. It's, it's like when I'm... It's, it's like they're held back, they're restrained. It's like when I, I've got a dog, um, Benson, who's a, a Dalmatian and is very, very funny. He's mad. And he's really good. But if he sees a squirrel, he goes nuts. And your arm gets kind of wrenched out the socket as he goes. And if he wasn't on a lead at that point, he would just go. But as I restrain him and hold him back, I hold him back from being able to attain that thing that he's seeking for. And somehow that's kind of what it, this sort of Greek means, that God restrains them, holds them back from seeing what's right in front of them. They can't see Jesus, even though he's right there. Perhaps, I might add, that because they're so shrouded in pain and disappointment and confusion and maybe anger and lostness, they can't even see Jesus through this haze of pain as well. But somehow, supernaturally, God adds to that and they don't recognise him. Why would God do that in this moment? Well, I think it's because God, the Father, really wants them to see Jesus, but not simply with their eyes. More importantly, to first truly see Jesus in a different way, a much deeper, transformative way. And that's what he wants for you and for me too. So these disciples who are a bit gobsmacked that Jesus doesn't seem to know what's going on about in the city, well, they start to tell Jesus of their shattered hopes and dreams for this Jesus, this prophet, who they thought would redeem Israel. I guess for them, and for lots of other kind of Jews at the time, they had imagined the Messiah was going to be an all-conquering, all-powerful Messiah who would lead them to freedom. And so, lo and behold, with the death of Jesus, these ideas of redemption are just decimated. But just like in our story from Daniel, this glorious story that I love so much, in the story of Daniel, what do we see? Well, I believe it's a pre-incarnate Jesus walking amongst them in the fire. And did you notice the details? They're thrown into the fire in bonds. But as Jesus walks amongst them in the midst of the fire, their bonds are loosed from them. Something happens in the heat of that fire that actually frees them. Jesus walking amongst them in the fire. There were three, Nebuchadnezzar now says, but now I see four of them walking around. They're unchained. Jesus walks amongst them in the fire. He steps into the heat of their hopelessness on the road to Emmaus. Isaiah 43 says this, When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. It's a promise of God, Emmanuel, God with us, 
When you pass through the waters, says God, I will be with you. Not, I'll kind of chuck my fishing rod out and hook you out of the waters from a distance. No, I'm actually going to be with you in the midst of the waters. And when you pass through the waters, they'll not sweep over you. And so for me, I think this account brings us all great consolation and encouragement. And it's really striking and really important and helpful to remember that the Emmaus story is an Easter day story. Luke tells us it happens on Resurrection Day, on Resurrection Sunday for us. On the very day we pack our churches full of people and we celebrate together and we sing our kind of resurrection choruses, the road to Emmaus with all that pain and brokenness and confusion still stretches out ahead of us with all the defeat and disillusionment and misrecognition that happens on it. On that same Easter Sunday. Which is to say, I think, that sometimes resurrection takes more than just three days for some people. Sometimes new life comes in fits and starts. Sometimes seeing and recognising the risen Christ is complicated. It's a difficult thing. It's a journey. It's a process. And that's okay. Not only is it okay, but Jesus is in the midst of all that. This year, as COVID-19 continues to shake us, as the trauma of injustice and war threatens the peace around the world, I'm so grateful for the honest witness of this post-resurrection story of normal, really struggling disciples. I'm grateful that the journey continues into Easter evening, when hope is close, but not yet fully realised. I'm grateful that this road to Emmaus, a road of brokenness, the road of failure, is a road that Jesus is prepared and ready to walk with us, to lead us out of. A road that honestly recognises deep disappointment and confusion, even as it holds out the promise of sustenance and revelation, found ultimately only in the fellowship and, and kind of relationship with Jesus and in that breaking of the bread, where it's like, the veil's lifted, they suddenly realise who this is. Jesus knew where Cleopas and his companion. Lots of theologians discuss who is this companion. The fact that they're unnamed in some ways is helpful because it means we can put ourselves into that story as his companion. But probably Cleopas's companion, lots of theologians think, was Mary, his wife. This husband and wife journeying together, feeling lost. Jesus knew where they were going and why they were going home. And he knows about you, where you're going, and why you're going there. He completely understands your journey, your struggles, your questions, your disappointment. And mercifully, he takes the initiative to find them and give them back something that they'd lost on their way. And he's ready and willing to do that for you too. He listens, he draws out their pain, he challenges their thinking, he speaks kindly to them because that's what God does. He explains the scriptures and he leads them into truth. He wanted to walk with them, to talk with them and to give them a future and a restored hope. Things that they had lost and he wants to do that for you and for me too. He knows our hearts and he knows where we have to have renewed hope perhaps. And of course, after their eyes were opened to the risen Saviour, they couldn't keep the good news to themselves. It's like suddenly, talk about a turnaround, suddenly they recognise him and they say, oh, do you know, I thought there was something funny about that bloke. 
or words to that equivalent. They recognised him. They said there was something burning inside. They realised they've met with Jesus. And what do they do? Well, they start sprinting back along this same road of despair that they've come along, back to Jerusalem, because they can no longer contain the good news that's within them. That very same, same self-hour, they rush back to Jerusalem to tell everybody. Jesus stops their march into oblivion and despair and turns them back towards the purposes, promises and presence of God. And that is really good news that has to be shared. That's true for you and for me. The road, no longer one of shattered hopes, now becomes a highway for mission where hope is bursting alive. So I want to pray for us that this Easter, whatever road you feel you're on, may the road you're on be one where confusion is replaced with clarity, worry with worship, discouragement with hope and darkness with Christ's never-ending radiance and light. There's a beautiful verse that many of you will know well in Romans 15:13. I guess it's my prayer for us. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you'll overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the Passion Translation. Now may God, the fountain of hope, fill you to overflowing with uncontainable joy and perfect peace as you trust in him. And may the power of the Holy Spirit continually surround your life with his superabundance until you radiate with hope. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you're the rescuer and redeemer. Jesus, I thank you that scripture is a long love letter from the Father to humanity. Saying, I want to call you to myself. I want you back, sons and daughters. And you're not the father who waits sternly with your eyes on the horizon to welcome back the naughty children who come back and you tapping your wristwatch crossly waiting for them to come back. No, you're the running father, Jesus says. The while the son was far off, the father saw him and ran to greet him. You're the father who calls us home into your presence, into a revelation of your goodness and mercy and grace. That you're the God of healing, as we heard in Josiah's name. You're the Lord who heals. So I pray for us, Lord, if we're all honest, there are areas of our hearts that are wounded and broken, where we've shut down or turned away, where we're disappointed or filled with unbelief or pain. But you're the God who shines your light not to expose us, and to shame us, but to heal us. You're the good physician, the one who comes alongside as our healer, to restore us. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us, and your desire is to draw us into fellowship with the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to know your love, and to dwell with you in refuge and rest. So, good shepherd, I pray this season would you journey with us on whatever road we find ourselves? And for those, the road they're traveling is one of disappointment and pain. Lord, would you bring your healing and your balm? And would you turn them back to a place of hope? God of hope, may you fill them with joy and peace as they trust in you, so they'll overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the season in our hearts, in our nation, in this world, 
May we turn to you and find hope in you, our risen, glorious Saviour. We pray in your name. Amen.